Chapter 6. There are two words for crown in the New Testament, diadema, which means a royal crown, and gives us the English word diadem, and Stephanus, the victor's crown, which gives us the popular name Stephen. You can inherit a diadema, but the only way to get a Stephanus is to earn it. We can assuredly say that Stephen earned his Stephanus in a most noble and godly manner. Acts chapter 6 and 7 focus on the ministry and martyrdom of Stephen, a spirit-filled believer who is crowned by the Lord. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation 2.10 Stephen was faithful in both life and in death. Stephen was the first martyr of the early church. He is also a historical link between Peter and Paul. For it was at the stoning of Stephen that Saul, or Paul, is first mentioned. As disciples in Jerusalem multiplied in number, it is not surprising to read of problems increasing as well. This chapter describes problems from within and without the congregation. Hellenists are Grecians, Jewish Christians who adopted Grecian culture, complain that the Hebrews, Jewish Christians who sought to preserve Jewish culture, neglected their widows in the daily distribution. We see that in chapter 2 and chapter 4. The apostles, desiring not to be distracted from their own work, summoned the disciples and charged them to select seven men whom the apostles might appoint to take care of this responsibility. Seven are selected by the people and appointed by the apostles through prayer and the laying on of hands. With the problem solved, the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly, including the obedience of many priests. Stephen, one of these seven that was chosen, began doing many wonders and signs. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the Libertines who disputed with Stephen. Unable to resist the spirit and wisdom of which he spoke, they resorted to false witness to stir up the people. Elders and scribes brought before the council. Stephen was charged with blasphemy against the temple and the law of Moses. The chapter ends with the council looking at Stephen, seeing his face as the face of an angel. Acts 6, 1-2 And in those days, when a number of disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The Grecians were Hebrews with a background of Greek culture, while the Hebrews were those who still followed the Mosaic law. The high plane to which the Spirit had brought the church was interrupted by the intrusion of satanic division and confusion. The sharing of material substance, which first characterized the church in Acts chapter 2 verses 44 to 46, gave way to the selfishness of the old sin nature. The Grecians, evidently a minority group, felt neglected and demanded that their widows be given equal consideration with the Hebrews. Now the solution to our problem. The twelve apostles summoned the multitude of disciples because it was not good that the apostles should leave the word of God to serve tables. The congregation should select seven men that the apostles might appoint. They should be of good reputation and they should be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So the apostles might give themselves to prayer in the word of God. The multitude is pleased and the seven are selected. Stephen, a man of full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and then Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas and a proselyte from Antioch. The seven men are appointed by the apostles, having prayed, laying hands on them. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. We commonly call these seven men of Acts, chapter 6, deacons, because the Greek noun diakomos is used in Acts 6, 1, ministration, and the verb diakonio, serve, is used in Acts 6, 2. The word simply means a servant. These seven men were humble servants of the church, men whose work made it possible for the apostles to carry on their important ministries among the people. Now let's pause here. We're going to do a bit of a history lesson and give us some background on the appointment of these seven men. The Bible mandated for caring for widows who had no other means of support if they had no family nearby. The book of James later reaffirms this for Christians. Judaism took this responsibility very seriously in contrast to Gentile cultures who did not but because it was considered virtuous to be buried in the land of Israel, many foreign Jews would come to spend their last days there in Jerusalem, and then die, and then if the man died first, they would leave widows. So thus, a disproportionate number of foreign Jewish widows lived in Jerusalem, which did not have any foreign Jewish synagogues for their distribution of charity to supply all the widows adequately. So this urban social problem of Jerusalem spilled over into the Christian church. As these widows became saved, they needed someone to take care of them. And Jewish culture placed a high emphasis on taking care of widows, whereas Gentile culture did not. They were from foreign lands. They did not have the family connections or the social connections to provide the support. So this created a great problem, great issue, even within the Christian church. So distributors of charity filled an office. Reputation was important for the sake of public credibility. So the president for having the people themselves choose distributors and the leader ratify their choice, which is what we see here, that the apostles had the people choose you out, seven men, of good report, full of the Holy Ghost, to perform this work, to wait on tables, to take care of these widows, perform this work, choose you out, and then the leaders ratified them. Well, this has Old Testament precedents. Deuteronomy 1.13, we can read, Take you wise men, understanding, and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. This is Moses speaking to the people. Take you wise men, understanding, and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. Now, tomb inscriptions show that many Jerusalemites had Greek names. Whether or not their parents or grandparents had lived outside Judea, we do not know. Estimates are up to almost 40% of Jews had Greek in their name at this time in Jerusalem on these inscriptions. So then all seven of these men have Greek names. This suggests that they are all known to be Hellenists, first or second generation Jewish immigrants back to Palestine, hence members of the offended minority. One is even a proselyte, a former Gentile who has converted to Judaism. Many of these lived in Antioch. The laying on of hands communicated blessing in the Old Testament, still occasionally tested in the apostolic period. But the idea here seems to be that of ordination, as in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. He says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thy hand upon him. And also verse 23. And he laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Remember, at this time, there was no New Testament written. They were going by what they knew of what the Old Testament had said. So the laying out of hands communicated blessing in the Old Testament, similar to later practice of ordaining bishops, pastors. Also, while we're here, let's briefly examine the qualifications of deacons, as found in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, 
not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy, of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they have used the office of a deacon, well purchased to themselves a good decree, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 8 it says, Grave, a deacon should be worthy of respect, a man of Christian character worth imitating. A deacon should take his responsibility seriously and use the office and not just fill the office, not double-tongued. He does not tell tales from house to house. He's not a gossip. He does not say one thing to one member and something entirely different to another member. You can depend on what he says. Not given much wine. Sad to say, some of the members of the Corinthians church got drunk, even at the love feast that accompanied the Lord's Supper. Here the word describes a person who sits long with the cup, abuses the alcohol. The Jewish people would add a little bit of wine to water. It is a well-known fact that the water was not safe to drink then, so the alcohol would help keep the water safe to drink. Paul also advises Timothy to use wine for medical purposes. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. So in this setting, this culture, this time frame, when the, these words were written, wine was used to purify the water to make it safe to drink, and wine was used for medical purposes. It's not advisable to think these passages allow someone to consume alcohol as a Christian when the vast majority of the Bible condemns consuming alcohol as a Christian and condemns the side effects of alcohol in a Christian's life as being sinful. So to take these couple of verses and use them to go against the whole totality of Scripture and the subject be very unwise and a very foolish decision to make. Scripture clearly teaches we are not to drink or abuse alcohol or drink alcohol as it affects how we act, it affects our behavior, and leads to so many other things that are sinful and inappropriate in a Christian's life. Here it was used in 1 Timothy 5.23 for medical reasons, and also it was used in this time frame in the world as to purify water, make water safe to drink. And there is a vast difference between the cultural use of wine in Bible days specifically used for medical reasons and using for purifying water and using that to support the alcohol industry of today. Paul's admonition in Romans 14 in verse 21 says, It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. It is good not to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. This verse alone would prohibit a Christian from drinking, as many Christians, other Christians, are offended by other Christians who seem to think it is okay to drink. Some more reasons, more teaching from the Bible that indicates that drinking is not proper, not allowed for a Christian, that drinking is sinful for a Christian. Leviticus 10.9 says, Do not drink wine nor strong drink. Here is an express command not to drink. We see in Genesis 19 that drinking led to the debauchery of Lot and his daughters. Deuteronomy 21.20, drinking leads to stubbornness, rebellion, brings dishonor to parents. Deuteronomy 29.2-6, abstinence assures better knowledge of God. 1 Samuel 1.14-15, Hannah, example of all honored motherhood, practiced total abstinence. 2 Samuel chapter 13, Amnon, while in a drunken brawl, was murdered by his brother Absalom. 2 Samuel 11, only by strong drink could David lead Uriah into a trap. Proverbs 4.17, through drinking the wicked become violent. They are bad enough at best, but drinking leads them to more violence. 
Proverbs 20, verse 1, No wise man will take wine or liquor, the Bible tells us. Proverbs 23, 21, Strong drink leads to poverty. Proverbs 23, 29 to 30 says, Strong drink produces woe, produces contention, produces sorrow, produces babbling, produces wounds without cause, redness of the eyes. Proverbs 23, 31 and 32 says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in a cup, when it moveth itself aright. At least it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. We are urged not to even look upon intoxicating beverages, let alone drink them. Proverbs 23.33 It fills men's minds with adulterous and impure thoughts. How would it be proper for a Christian to drink? Proverbs 23.34 Brings on insecurity. Isaiah 28.7 says drinking brings on spiritual blindness. How would it be okay for a Christian to drink? Amos 6.6 says drinkers tend to not be concerned about God, nor about the welfare of other people. How would it be okay for a Christian to drink? Hosea 4.11, strong drink and immorality go hand in hand. How would it be okay for a Christian to drink? Luke 1.15, greatness of John the Baptist linked with his total abstinence. 1 Corinthians 6.10, no drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21, revelers and drunkenness shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Here is a direct command not to become drunk. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 8, sobriety, as opposed to drunkenness, is celebrated and encouraged upon the Thessalonians. If you look at the preponderance of Scripture, Scripture totality, there is no way you can assume, think, or even derive that a Christian is to drink or is allowed to drink or can drink alcohol. Clear that a Christian is not to drink alcohol, not to be deceived by alcohol and not to use alcohol. Not greedy or filthy lucre. Deacons may handle offerings and distribute money to needy people in the church. It may be tempting to steal or use funds in selfish ways. Finance committees and churches need to have a spiritual attitude towards money and many checks and balances that keep everything honest. Doctrinally sound. The word mystery means truth, once hidden but now revealed by God. The great doctrines of the faith are hidden to those outside the faith, but they can be understood by those who trust the Lord. Deacons must understand Christian doctrine and obey it with a good conscience. It is not enough to sit in meetings and decide how to run the church. They must base their decisions on the Word of God, and they must back up their decisions with the Word of God and with the example of their godly lives. They should be tested and proved. This implies watching their lives and seeing how they conduct themselves. In most churches, a new member of, or a new Christian may begin serving God in visitation, ushering, helping in Sunday school, and numerous other ways. This is the principle of Matthew 5.21. It is worth noting that a few, quite a few leaders mentioned in the Bible were first tested as servants. Joseph was a servant in Egypt for 13 years before he became a second ruler in the land. Moses cared for sheep for 40 years before God called him. Joshua was Moses' servant before he became Moses' successor. David was tending his father's sheep when Samuel noted him king of Israel. Even our Lord Jesus came as a servant and labored as a carpenter. And the apostle Paul was a tent maker, first a servant then a ruler. It always weakens the testimony of a local church when a member who has not proved himself is made an officer of the church. Deacons should have godly homes, verses 11 to 12. The deacon's wife is part of his ministry, for godliness must begin at the home. Their wives must be Christian women who are serious about the ministry, not given to slanderous talk, faithful in all they do. Chapter 3, verse 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, Ruling their children in their own houses well. The husband of one wife. We're going to examine that. First, we need to have some rules of, of Bible interpretation, of Scripture interpretation. Number one, we need to approach Scriptures open-mindedly. We all have the tendency to believe what we've always been taught, without looking at our views critically to see if they are consistent with Scripture. 
The person who desires to know God's mind must always come to the Word with a pure heart and an open mind, leaving prejudices and preconceived ideas behind. What is most important is that we find out what God's Word says in this situation, not what our traditions or culture say. Mark chapter 7, verse 7 and verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men? And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Number two, look at all scriptural evidence. We cannot just rely on those verses which support our cherished positions. That is how we so often argue scripture. I will gather several texts which support my position. They deny or ignore the text you have gathered to support yours. For if you to be biblical, it must fit every scriptural text into the view without denying or doing hermeneutical violence to any position. And number three, look at each scripture in its context. The context of a passage will never change the meaning of a verse that will clarify the meaning. Each text must be studied on its own, faithfully understanding its context. Then we seek to put all the verses together in a unified and consistent whole. If the Bible is God's word, then every verse's clear meaning will fit together into the totality that is logical and consistent. There will not be any inconsistency. There will not be any verses that seem to contradict each other. If we understand the meaning, the totality of the meaning of all the verses, we put it together, Nothing will contradict. So now a closer examination. Within the past several years, I've, I've looked more closely at the issue of God hating divorce. Malachi 2.16a says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. And yet there is the fact that he did it. Jeremiah 3, verse 8. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement. God says concerning Israel, I have put her away and given her a bill of divorce. God is willing to appear in a character of one giving a wife a divorce. I have wondered at such willingness to be identified in such a way and how that is meaningful to his children who suffer from such traumas. God is willing to be identified with those who have been divorced and knows what it is like to be betrayed and hurt. One does not desire or want divorce or remarriage. They are the court of last resort, so to speak. But we can't afford to make second-class church members out of God's children who are striving to do the best they can within their limitations. Christians in general have a poor record in the area of treating believers as forgiven in these areas. How can we look on brothers and sisters as second-class citizens when God has chosen them, God has forgiven them, and God has made them his children? Compassion and redemption are part and parcel of this process. I would not approve of a divorce in every case, and I think we ought to work to preserve every marriage that we can. But when there are no options left, then a new marriage and new relationship, as long as based on how God defines divorce and remarriage, deserves all our support and encouragement. But since I'm here, in many ways I think we have made divorce the unpardonable sin. In other ways, I think we have just justified it falsely too many times. As I told some folks about this subject a long time ago, they were actually willing to listen. Back to our context here. First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 don't actually mention divorce. It's not there. When the biblical criteria actually is, what it actually is saying when it says, the husband of one wife, from a great leader in, and in many ways a founding member of today's independent fundamental Baptist churches. Dr. John R. Rice said this about 1 Timothy chapter 3 concerning where it says, husband of one wife. He says, 1 Timothy chapter 3 does not refer to a former maid as I understand it. In Bible times, many of the converts had several wives at the same time, even as some heathen people do now. It was not said they could not be Christians, or that they could not be members of churches, was said that these people living with two wives at the same time should not be pastors or bishops. The same requirement was for deacons and for bishops. 
That passage, I think, clearly has no reference to divorce and former husbands or former wives. The issue of divorced men serving as pastors and deacons has been debated for years. The general assumption has been that those who have been divorced cannot serve in these positions. Others have suggested the husband one wife phrase refers to bigamy. Then some also question if this is a prohibition against single deacons and pastors. And what about those whose wife has passed away and they remarried? Are they now disqualified? Because they're no longer, in certain people's definitions, the husband of one wife. There could also be the question if man's been married once and still married, but he was unfaithful early on in his marriage. Is he qualified? Or how about the man that had multiple premarital encounters, but then once he was married, has remained faithful to his wife? Is he qualified to serve by the phrase husband of one wife? Or what if the divorce occurred before salvation? Is that man qualified? God has told us in his word he is not the author of confusion. Yet there is much confusion about what this phrase means. It does not seem logical for God to put such confusion into his word. He did not put confusion into his word. But because man is not rightly dividing his word regarding the phrase husband of one wife, confusion abounds. By not rightly dividing this phrase, there are endless multitude of what-ifs. If the phrase husband of one wife would just simply be rightly divided, no man-made exceptions, no man-thought-of exceptions or patches needed to make it work. The phrase husband of one wife rightly divided causes zero confusion. This phrase rightly divided is in harmony with all of God's word, including the fact that he claims to not to be the author of confusion. And the rightly divided interpretation of the phrase husband and wife simply means a one woman man. And rightly divided that phrase also means what it says, husband of one wife. John chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. She currently has no husband, according to Jesus, but she had had five husbands. So she is currently the wife of zero husbands. If she were to get married that day, she would be the wife of one husband. Or if you reverse the situation, he would be the husband of one wife, even though he had had five previous wives. Biblical divorce severs the marriage union. Once you're biblically divorced, you're not considered married anymore. So if you were to get remarried again, you would be the husband of one wife, or the wife of one husband. Dr. Curtis Hudson said the following about this passage here in John chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, concerning former husbands and wives. Curtis Hudson said, A divorce on biblical grounds means that the former marriage is no longer binding. We have heard men say that a certain person has two wives or three living wives, meaning that he had been married two or three times and his former wives were still living. But the former wife is no longer a wife, and a former husband is no longer a husband. In John chapter 4, Jesus did not recognize a woman's former husbands as her husbands. In verse 16, Jesus said unto her, Go call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered him in verse 17, I have no husband. Then Jesus replied, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. Jesus did not say she had five living husbands. As a matter of fact, he said she told the truth when she said she had no husband and reminded her that she had been married five different times. Those who are divorced on Bible grounds are really divorced, are single, unmarried, unbound, 
and free to marry again, but only the Lord. That is, if they remarry, they are to marry a believer. That's the end of his quote. So Jesus teaches that if you have been married and then divorced on biblical grounds, you are no longer the wife or the husband of that person. You are single. And if you were to get married again, you would then be considered the husband of one wife or the wife of one husband. Deacons should also have a willingness to work. They should demonstrate a willingness to work. We see that in verse 13. This is used for the office, not just Phil's office. He's to work the office, not just fill the office. The Greek word translated degree means rank, as in the army, a base, a step, or rung on the ladder. What an encouragement to a faithful deacon. God will promote him spiritually and give him more and more respect among the saints, which means greater opportunity for ministry. A faithful deacon has a good standing before God and men. Stephen was one of these men. The emphasis in Stephen's life is on fullness. He was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, Acts 6, verse 3 and 10. Full of faith, Acts 6, verse 5. And full of power, Acts 6, verse 8. In Scripture, to be full of means to be controlled by. This man was controlled by the Spirit, controlled by faith, controlled by wisdom, controlled by the power of God. He was a God-controlled man, yielded to the Holy Spirit, a man who sought to lead people to Christ. Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So what was the result of the appointment of these seven, what we refer to sometimes as the first deacons? What was the result of this appointment? The result was the blessing of God continued and increased. The church was still unified, Acts 6-5, multiplied, Acts 6-7, and magnified, Acts 6-8. Acts 6-7 is one of several summaries found in the book. Statements that let us know that the story has reached an important juncture. In Acts 6-7, our eminent historian, Dr. Luke, describes the climax of the ministry in Jerusalem. For the persecution following Stephen's death will take the gospel to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. It has been estimated that there were 8,000 Jewish priests attached to the temple ministry in Jerusalem. And here in chapter 6, we hear of a great company of them trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. So a significant portion of those 8,000 Jewish priests trusted Christ as their Savior. So then now charges get brought up against Stephen. His ministry is full of faith, full of power. He does great wonders and, and signs among the people. Disputed with some from the synagogue of the Libertines, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, who were unable to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. So what is the synagogue of the Libertines? Paul Chappell made this comment on this group. This group was a synagogue of those Jews who had been dispersed outside of Israel and now gathered in Jerusalem to worship. Their apologists were unable to argue Stephen's knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures which pointed the way to Christ. This shows us the necessity of Bible study and of Bible training. So we have the accusations. They secretly induced men to charge Stephen with blasphemy against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, to come seize him, to bring him to the Sanhedrin council. They set up false witnesses who charged Stephen with blasphemy against the holy place, the temple. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. Stirred up false witnesses saying he was against the law of Moses. And all shall change the customs which Moses delivered us is what they said. But notice his composure. All who sat in the council looked steadfastly at Stephen. But what did they see when they looked steadfastly at Stephen? They saw his face as of the face of an angel. Acts chapter 6, 12-15 and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and came upon him and caught him, and brought him to the council, and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, loved this part, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. By some means these unbelieving Jews were able to stir up the people, and they accused Stephen before the Sanhedrin. The charge was twofold. First, Stephen was speaking against the temple was the charge. In the second charge, Stephen was changing the law of Moses. The charges labeled him a blasphemer. As he prepared to answer, the Sanhedrin saw his face shining as if the face of an angel. We can think of Exodus chapter 34.29 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. Exodus 34.29 says, On notice they were charging Stephen, saying he was changing the law of Moses. But notice how similar Stephen appeared by how they knew Moses had appeared at one point in time. Exodus 34.29 And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. Notice Stephen's face. Saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And Moses, his face shone while he talked to them. So Stephen was looking very similar to how they knew the historical accounts of Moses, how Moses looked when he came down from Mount Sinai. This must have just added on to the conviction, added on to the things that were making them angry. They were getting so convicted, torn up. This is just flying in the face of everything they believe, but yet you can just see Stephen's face. This is testifying that God is with him. God is blessing him. And this is what God is actually saying. This is coming straight from the Lord, evidenced by his face looking as if it was the face of an angel. This must have just cut them deeply to the heart, wounded them deeply to the heart. John Phillips had this comment on Acts 6, verse 15. Having heard the indictment, the Sanhedrin turned to see how Stephen was reacting to the deadly charges. They saw the face of an angel. As the face of Moses had shone with the light of another world, when he came down from the mount, so now the face of Stephen shone. It was not hate they saw there, nor horror, but heaven. The sight of that angelic face must have burned like red-hot iron in the soul of Saul of Tarsus. That face, we cannot doubt, haunted him, haunted Saul, until he saw the face of Jesus, which whereafter filled his vision.